I've asked Brother John to uh, open the service this morning, and he will also use this time to maybe give further explanation on the email that he sent out concerning uh, worship services in Brookville. And then immediately following the sermon, uh, Brother Cephas will have a little bit of time and a few pictures concerning the fertilizer program in Haiti. I think there was an email that also went out on that, but he'll give further explanation. That will come at the end of the service. So just thought I'd let you know that up front. We want to welcome all visitors here this morning. Glad you're here, and we look forward to worshiping the Lord together. Good morning, everybody. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Yeah, Matthew 28, we'll be reading verses 18 through 20 this morning. I'm going to talk to you about the marching orders for the church. Let me say it one more time. It's Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Talk about the Great Commission. Now, from my background, the Great Commission is a very popular passage. Many pulpits have thundered with this passage, and I want to share a little bit of my heart with you. The Great Commission is the thrust of almost all missions, efforts, and endeavors. Now, I just want to remind everybody that I am a preacher, so I'm going to preach to you this on this morning. So why don't we stand together, and in honor of his word, why don't we read the word together as we stand? Starting at verse 18, it says... And Jesus came and spake, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, before you sit down, why don't we pray together? Lord, we come before you today and the great commission that you gave your church and the marching orders you've given us. Lord, as we look at this passage briefly this morning, I ask you just to convict our hearts, Lord, that we would join you in what you are already doing and the work that you are fulfilling in the world, that you would use us as willing vessels to reach the world with your word and your gospel, and your salvation, and your kingdom. Lord, may you be glorified this morning. May you impact our hearts, and may we go out differently than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So let's talk about the foundation by which all missions are built. The foundation by which all missions are built. Let's, I'm going to read verse 18 again to you. It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus speaking to his disciples, he's telling them, he goes, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This is not some power. This is not just a little bit over in this corner. It's not for a certain time period. It is all power. He reigns over all. And it is by this power, this is the foundation by which the church is built. And this is what makes the church victorious is the king she serves. What makes the church powerful is the foundation by which she's built. And it is the power of Jesus Christ who has power over all, authority, and, uh, over all the earth and in heaven and on earth is the foundation of the church. Now this power here in, in, in uh, some translation is also known as authority. And what this means is that Jesus rules over all. He rules over all. It reminds me of the time when Jesus is before Pontius, Pontius Pilate and he's talking to them. And he says, so you're a king because you said so. He go, and then he asks a question. Jesus doesn't answer. And he goes, don't you realize I could have you killed or keep you alive? He goes, you wouldn't have power unless it was given to you from above. He understands that Jesus' authority is over all. He rules over all. He's known as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the sovereign potentate over all heaven and earth. And I'm going to read to you from 1 Timothy 6. It says, and he's ta Paul's talking to this young man, Timothy, and he says, 
But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession." that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul's letting Timothy know, when you serve Jesus, this is who you're serving. Um, Earlier this week, my son says, Daddy, why don't you become president? Because he thinks I know everything. He doesn't know that I don't. He'll figure that out soon enough. Use, I'm thinking around probably 15 years old. He'll figure out that I don't know anything. <laughs> and then I'll have to convince him he doesn't know everything. Anyway, he said, why don't you become president? I said, why would I stoop down to become president when I already get to serve the king of the universe? That is your position today. You have the privilege of serving King Jesus. You have the privilege of being in his uh, kingdom. You have the privilege of being in his castle, part of his family. It is this authority by which is the foundation of the church, and the kingdom of God is established. Now, Matthew 28 makes it clear. The kingdom of God is advancing, and it advanced in Jesus, and now Jesus, through his church, advances his kingdom in the world. And he's calling people like you and me to advance this kingdom. You know why? So that way all of the angelic host in the universe would know that Christ reigns. That the whole earth would know that Christ reigns. That the heavens would ring with the glory of God. And that the earth would sing his praises. May we never stop until Every person bows a knee and says, I serve the King, King Jesus. Until all can say, He is my Lord, the church has a job to do on earth. Our King reigns with all authority and power in heaven on earth. And from this place of exalted power that Jesus has, He commissions His army. He commissions His army. And I want to talk about that. And that's the mission to which Jesus has called us to. Verse 19, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So from this place of authority and power that Jesus now has, he launches an invasion into the kingdom of darkness. But this isn't an invasion of violence. This isn't an invasion to, uh, to destroy. It's an invasion of redemption. It's an invasion of light. When Jesus came into the world, it said the world was in darkness and light burst forth onto the earth because of Jesus. And because of his church, the church is God's kingdom on earth. The earth can see that. The world can see that. And it's not with weapons, physical weapons of the flesh, but weapons of the spirit. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6, we read, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalted exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Jesus' army moves forward. He goes forward waging war, the war of peace, the war of reconciliation, The world is already hostile to God. We're telling the world you can be redeemed to God. The world is already against Jesus. We're telling that the king of the universe has reached out his hand in reconciliation. Jesus has already written down with his own blood the terms of peace that goes towards all mankind. And we, as his ambassadors, go forth into into this creation, go forth into the world and say and proclaim this peace. And we, re- we watch as God is redeeming those who walk in darkness to the kingdom of light. 
And it says here, teach all nations literally means making disciples of all nations. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter any of that. What matters is that you are following Jesus. What matters is that you're a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is building his kingdom, a nation, a nation among all the other nations. Jesus is building his kingdom in the world through people. And this kingdom is not defined by boundaries or walls or borders. It's defined by an allegiance to Jesus. And that this church are citizens of Christ's kingdom and would flood the world with light. And because of such, they live differently from the world. They love differently from the world. And they have a different allegiance from the world, and that is to Jesus. Now, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. They're baptized into the Trinity. They are, they are redeemed to the Father. They're raised with the Son. And they're filled with the Spirit. That is the will that God has for them. And this public proclamation of their life in God through baptism. Baptism is a public proclamation. It is saying, I am immersed in Christ. I've been redeemed to the Father. I've been I've been raised with the Son, and I have been filled with the Spirit. And I'm going to follow Jesus in every area of my life. It's that kind of people that God is using. It is that kind of people that God is calling the church to be. Committed Jesus followers, casting all our allegiance to Him, that He would be glorified on earth. And lastly, I'd finish up here with the kingdom that Jesus is building is among the kingdoms of the world. I'll say it differently. The nation that Jesus is building is among the nations of the world. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So the kingdom that Jesus is building is a kingdom, again, founded on the authority of our king. It is built by the work that Christ has done in our lives. I did not redeem myself back to God. You did not redeem yourself back to God. Jesus redeemed you to God. It is his work that he has done in our hearts that he, that he is building his church and his kingdom is advancing. It is expressed by people who define their lives by the commandments of Christ. You were called to live differently. Some people... I, I get to have lots of conversations of why my wife and I moved from where we were into more of an Anabaptism. Because Anabaptism understood that Jesus' people live differently. They obey the commands of Christ. They live by the design of the New Testament. They don't excuse it. They rejoice in it. And that's what we're called to do. And we are to teach these disciples of Jesus to observe all things that Christ commanded. So with this, so the lives of the family of Jesus would shine to a dark world as they walk in the light. That's what we're called to do. Walk in the light, live in the light, follow the commandments of Jesus, living them out with our allegiance to Jesus, and live as he lived. So as the church moves forth, Jesus moves through us, reaching the world with the gospel of peace, preaching reconciliation to people unto God and establishing his kingdom in this dark world. Jesus is moving. Jesus is working. Jesus is serving. The question is, is he doing it through your hands, through your feet, through your words, and through your, and through your life? Because he wants to, that's his will, is that you'd walk in footsteps after him, living out his life in you to a dark world. So with, with that, I want to talk about what we're doing in Brookville. Um, it's called Pilgrim Anabaptist Church. Now, I'd like to clear something up, that this is not a cornerstone church plant um, there was no decision um, by the leadership to plant a church in which to bring to the congregation. It was a decision by my wife and I to plant a church in Brookville. I'm a church planter. And I approached a few of the leaders privately to find out if I could invite help from the church. And that's what the email was about, was simply me inviting help from the church. I apologize if there was any confusion. 
Um, but this will not be a Dunkard Brethren Church. It will be just an independent Anabaptist church. If you have concerns or thoughts, I am more than welcome to talk to you and uh, speak with me. If you want more information, if you didn't get the email, if you go to pilgrimanabaptistchurch.com, it outlines kind of what, what, outlines a lot, most of what we're doing. The, theology, the theological stance and values and stuff are very similar, if not exactly the same as Dunkard Brethrenism. Um, but if you want more information, you can go there. So we're an Anabaptist church plant. Now I want to go through a brief look, of, look at our core values of the church plant. The first one is Christocentric. It means that we believe the Christian life centers on following Jesus. The second core value is Christ as king. Again, these are outlined in more detail on the website. It says our allegiance is to Jesus, and, he's, and he sets us apart from the world as pilgrims, hence Pilgrim Anabaptist Church. We're pilgrims in this world. We're new covenant means that we live in the new covenant established and wrought by Jesus. Jesus established the new covenant in his own blood. We live in that new covenant. Believer's baptism, we, believe, we, we baptize people who believe and follow Jesus, who've made a profession of faith and a profession of commitment to follow Jesus. Um, nonviolence, oh no, sorry, the next one's brotherhood. It's where Dunkard Brethren, that's part of that is, but it's a brotherhood. And the church is primarily a family, a family of God. One of the things about Ephesians, if you study it, is there, and some of the New Testament is, that he was trying to show them that Jew and Gentile we're now brothers. And it doesn't matter your background, but through Christ, we are brothers and sisters, the family of God. Um, the next one's nonviolence. As children of God and followers of Jesus, we are not going to participate in violence or violent acts of rebellion and such. And countercultural. Now, the, this I'll read. This is the life of, that Jesus calls his followers to through his teachings and his teachings of his apostles. Set his church apart as they shine as a distinct people living counterculturally to the world and the world system. This is the part where you have uh, Titus two, um, and he's discussing that we're a peculiar people, we're a distinct people. We live according to the design of the New Testament. We follow the ordinances described in the New Testament. Things like head covering, modest dress. Um, foot washing, uh, love feasts, um, and etc. There's more of those. But we live according to that example because it, it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the pattern that Jesus Christ and his apostles established. It's the pattern that we will continue to follow. Um, and then lastly, great commission. The church is commissioned by Christ to reach the world with the gospel of the kingdom as Jesus builds his nation among nations. The church is commissioned by Jesus to build his kingdom. Now, what we're hoping for and what I would ask you to pray about are what called SWAT teams. Now, I know that term might not be the best, but SWAT teams mean strategic, willing, and temporary. This, what this would be, strategic is you're there for a purpose. There's a reason you're there. Um, willing, you're eagerly serving Jesus um, in reaching the Brookville community. And temporary, which is short-term, and I put in the email six months to a couple years commitment to helping get the church off the ground. This is not a permanent commitment. You're saying, hey, I want to help out for a few months or a couple years, participate in this, see what I can do. When the church becomes established, people are being reached with the gospel, people are coming in. At that point, you can step out. Now, we understand that Cornerstone is your church home, and we don't want to interfere with anything like that. We understand this is your church home, and I don't, we don't want to cause any trouble there whatsoever. But if your family would be interested in helping spread the gospel, learning how to church plant and feel called to this type of ministry, we would gladly embrace the help. Um, it's a great way for you to get your feet wet and say, you know what, when we go out, this is when we start a church, this is the way it can be done. This is what it feels like to regularly share the gospel on a regular, on a regular basis. It's a way to get experience. So if Cornerstone in the future says, hey, we're going to go church plant, let's say, in Greenville, just the main city. Wonderful. Now you have families who've done it, and that's part of the point. Part of the point. Um, so the, I listed out 11 things, I think it is. Um, participate in the gatherings, what we could use help, participate in the gatherings to help create a biblical culture to bring new and incoming, incoming believers into. It's important that a biblical culture is established. So that way when new believers are, are being one to the gospel, one to Jesus, they're coming into a culture that nurtures that discipleship so that way they can pattern their lives in line with the biblical culture. 
Um, number two is gospel sharing. This is engaging the community on different levels to share the gospel, uh, sh- uh, share the hope and love of Jesus. And then uh, third is VBS. We plan on doing a VBS in the park this summer sometime to reach children's and families with the gospel. If you would be interested in helping out with that, um, that would be great. Uh, song leader, someone who would lead worship. I have led worship, but I've led quite a few songs in my life. It'd be nice to have someone who could do that on a regular basis. Teaching and men who are willing to speak periodically and exhort and encourage the young church. And here's a big one. Prayer warriors. You say, you know, John, I just don't feel like we can come down there and help out and be part of all that. You can pray for us. You can lift us up to the Lord because these efforts come with a lot of spiritual battles. If you think doing something like this and reaching out to a dark world with the gospel of peace is not going to go noticed in the spiritual world, you're mistaken. Spiritual battles will come, and we need to be prayed for, and we also ask for prayer for the church as she bears witness to Brookville. Um, Seven disciple makers, people who are willing to work with new believers to see them grow in their faith. If you've never discipled someone and you're more mature in your faith, you're like, you know what? This is obedience. Part of the Great Commission is make disciples. So we need people willing to do that. And then hospitality, people willing to initiate relationships with newcomers to help connect people with Jesus and his church. And then later on, you got Sunday school teachers and then people who are willing to plan and coordinate events and things like that to reach the community. And then anything other that you might be willing to offer that I didn't list. Um, next Sunday evening at 6 p.m., we're going to meet here. And if you or your family would be interested in something like this to participate, to help out, be here next Sunday evening at 6 p.m. And we will gladly give you all the information, answer any questions that you have or concerns that you may have, and uh, address it from there. So on that note, why don't we start taking some prayer requests? Uh, Phil, I'm going to ask you to pray. Um, So are there any prayer requests this morning? Roland and Pat. Roland and Pat. Any other prayer requests? Yes. Could you do a general prayer for the marriages of our congregation? And we're all human. We can easily get each other's throats and try to strike one another with Jesus. Amen. Just lift up the marriages of our congregation in every way. Amen. He's uh, asked for prayer for the marriages in our congregation. Any other? Yes. I just think about the war-torn countries and how close that could be to us. Just help us to live with that prayer that's even to God, I guess I don't know what to say. That's right. Amen. Amen. Yes, Titus. The lost. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Any others? No, Phil, would you lead us in prayer? Brother Jonathan hinged on the the thought there in Matthew concerning the power of the kingdom. And I want to use that as a springboard moving into the message this morning. The power of the kingdom. There are many ways that power is exhibited today around us. The power of men, their systems, their positions, their machines. But what about the power of God? The power of God is exhibited in many ways in His kingdom and in the life of believers. We who believe have experienced and seen the power of God. Possibly one of the greatest displays of God's power is seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When that stone was rolled away on the third day, and Jesus, He who was dead, completely dead, burst forth, from the grave in the power and glory of God. 
I ask you this morning, would you like to experience this power in your life? And your thoughts are probably going to many different ways that God could illustrate His power in your life. I would that the kingdom of God would explode in power this morning. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 63. I'm going to take a different approach to the power of God, the power of the kingdom this morning. Probably in a way that might even be opposite as what you think. Because when we think of the power of God, we think of dynamite, we think of glory, we think of shining light, we think of moving power that does things. Listen to the words of the psalmist. O God, Psalm 63, 1 through 6, O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee, my soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Could it be one of the greatest ways that the power of God is experienced today? is in our quiet time with my Lord. The title of the message is simply quiet time with my Lord. My burden this morning is not only for myself, but for you little children that you would develop a habit as you grow older to carve out regular time when you can read and you can meditate and you can think and you can have private quiet time with your Lord. My, my burden is for you young people and youth. I know you struggle with what can I do in the kingdom? What is my purpose in life? Learn to lay this burden to the Lord. Learn to carve out private, quiet time with your Lord. I'm all about doing things in the kingdom. But I wonder if the greatest power isn't realized when we meet privately with our Lord. Older people, some of us have become stagnant. I admit that at time, and that's what's prompted this message. Lord, would you just rejuvenate us? And I think this can happen most of all in my quiet time with the Lord. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. This is really the text passage this morning. First we'll rehearse in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 17, 1 through 3. And when Abraham was ninety and nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, And said unto him, I am Almighty God, 
Walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make a covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying... Remember that phrase, Abraham fell on his face before the Lord. Brother Phil spoke last Sunday and he mentioned about this covenant with Abraham. It's rehearsed here. God meets privately with Abraham and he rehearses it again as he promises him a, uh, help me out Phil, a seed, uh, a land. He promises these things to Abraham as Abraham fell on his face before the Lord. Verse 17, And Abraham fell on his face before the Lord. And here it says he laughed at what God had to say, but he fell on his face. Chapter 18, The Lord appears to Abraham, and you can remember with me their discussion here. This is a discussion between Abraham and God concerning the wickedness of Sodom. Verse 22, it says, Abraham stood before the Lord. Remember that phrase, Abraham stood before the Lord. And look what happens. Abraham tries to negotiate with God concerning the wickedness of Sodom. And he tries to intercede. God, if there just be 50 righteous souls in that city, will you withhold your powerful destruction? And God says, yes. Abraham says, if there be 45, will you withhold your hand of destruction? Yes. If there be 40, if there be 30, if there be 20, if there be 10 righteous souls in Sodom, Lord, will you withhold the destruction of that city? And our merciful God says, yes. Problem is, there was not. And the Lord commanded Lot and his family to exit out of that city. And then with the power of his destruction, he destroys the entire region. Sodom, Gomorrah, it says here in chapter 19, the plains. The entire region of that southwest edge of the Dead Sea. And there's not been life there since. We'll read this text passage, Genesis 19. Verse 23, And the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zor. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. I want you to just get a picture of how big this really is and how powerful this really is. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. Verse 26, But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Verse 27, And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. I want to ask you this morning as you read through this passage, what verse would you pick out if I was to ask you which verse displays God's greatest power? Verse 24, the Lord rained brimstone and fire out of heaven. That's power. He overthrew the cities of the plain. And all of the people that lived there, in verse 25, and everything that had life, he killed it. 
That's power. Verse 26, Lot's wife looked back and she became a great pillar of salt. That's the power of God. I can't describe it. In fact, you, you know with me that that whole region today is salty. The Dead Sea is salty. And there is no life there to speak about. That's power of God all through these years. The power of salt. The power of death. But I call you to the 27th verse. I'm thinking this morning that the greatest power that is exhibited in this passage could be in the 27th verse, quiet time with my Lord. I know how us busy Christians would have handled it today. If something like that was to happen, we would have sent out an email that evening and we would have said, let's all gather tomorrow morning and we're going to clean this mess up. We're going to elect committees. We're going to come with pitchforks and skid steers and tractors and wagons and we're going to clean up this place. It says in verse 27, But Abraham got up early in the morning and he went to the place where he was to meet with the Lord. And he overlooked this, this whole region. I stood on that mountain overlooking the Dead Sea. It's desert. It's salty. Abraham looked over that region and there he met face to face with the Lord. And God exhibited His power through Abraham's life. It says here in verse 29, God remembered Abraham. He didn't remember the people of Sodom. He remembered Abraham. It could be when I look for the power of God in my life, when I think God is not present, it could be that the greatest way to see God's power is in my private time, my quiet time, with my Lord. Abraham stood before the Lord, and God remembered Abraham. Could it be that God's greatest power is best seen, not in the visible things, but in the invisible things around us, as we meet privately with the Lord? We may wonder at times, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you not stepping in and stopping this wickedness? Where is your power? God, why am I not feeling your direction in my life? God, what would you have me to do? Could it be God's greatest power is realized in our quiet time with Him? Speaking to myself, and encouraging all of us, maybe it's time that we reprioritize our busy schedules, our habits, our lifestyles to where we regularly meet and find quiet time with our Lord. Is this lacking in your life or am I alone? Could it be the secret to the Christian's life is found in quiet time with my Lord? Could it be the most effective church today in this world are those who are individually meeting with God each day? What we desire is deep fellowship with God. That's what He desires with us. A close communion with Him. In the epistle of John, 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 3, it speaks about walking in the light with Him and when we do, we can have this deep fellowship with Him and with each other. This is not found in Christian activity or church busyness. This is found in our quiet time with the Lord.
I've jotted down several things that could enhance our quiet time with Him. These are things maybe you can benefit from. I will qualify this up front. This is a lengthy list. I'm not going to get into each one, but rather uh, just touch on a few. This is not a, a complete list. This is not a list that I suggest that you try to do every time you meet with the Lord. But these are things that our quiet time should include at times and could enhance our quiet time with Him. If you're really wanting deep fellowship with Him, I'm suggesting this morning that you carve out time, that you make time to prioritize your life to where you find regular quiet time with Him. The first one is cooperative commitment. I admit I don't really like that phrase, that term, those words, cooperative commitment. It means that I have to partner with God in this. It means that I must be committed. But it also comes with promise that God is also cooperating and partnering with us and He will help us to keep that commitment. He will do the same. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, I exhort you therefore that first of all, supplications, prayer, intercessions, giving of thanks are made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. And in 2 Timothy chapter, two, chapter 1, verse 12, a familiar passage, we think about cooperative commitment, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Cooperative commitment. Chip Ingram tells a story about when he was a young man in college becoming a pastor and walking between classes, he would oftentimes go around a construction zone, and he did that day after day, and he became friends with an older bricklayer, and they would stop, he would stop and chat with this bricklayer from time to time. And this older man gave Chip Ingram these words of advice. He said, Chip, as you become a pastor and a leader in church, I recommend that you always Make time to meet with God before you meet with men. And Chip says today that he still tries to do that. He says sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's five hours. But I try to meet with God before I meet with men. Quiet time with our Lord is essential. It is valuable. And it is powerful. What would the rest of the Bible look like? Do you think? We don't know, but imagine with me. What would the rest of the Bible look like if Abraham would not have got up early that morning and met with God? What if Enoch did not walk with God? What if we struck out all of the passages in the scriptures where Moses met face to face with God from the smoking mountain to the desert times to the burning bush? What if all of those times when God and man were struck out of the Bible? What would the rest of the Bible look like if Daniel did not meet with God three times a day? What if David would not have went into the mountains of Engedi, into the caves, into the pastures, and found quiet time with God? Would the Psalms even have been written, many of them? How would the end of the story be written if Jesus did not go into a mountain 
and find time to pray. Matthew 6, 3, Matthew, or John 6, 3, and Matthew 15, 29. So ask yourself, how would the rest of your story, how will it be written? Maybe the question is not, am I spending enough time meeting with my Lord? Maybe the question should be, how will my story be written if I don't? And my children's story, and my grandchildren's story. Quiet time with our Lord is critical. Cooperative commitment. Another one is singleness of focus. Stay focused. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. If you're meeting with the Lord, stay focused. I know today we have all kinds of interruptions, and I dealt with that this week as I'm preparing the very message that I'm trying to practice and preach, and I had so many interruptions preparing this message. It's hard to stay focused today. I'm all about getting devotionals on our cell phones, getting encouraging text from our brothers and sisters through the week, through the day, hearing uh, good blips and messages on the radio. I'm all about feeding our souls through the day. I'm suggesting this morning that's not enough. Meet privately with your Lord. Carve out time where you can stay focused. Get rid of the interruptions. I emphasize the word quiet time. Be still. Stay focused. Realize that quiet time is a growing process. Don't be hard on yourself if you don't see fruit immediately. Give yourself that grace. Just like a plant that's planted does not bear fruit immediately, this will come. Quiet time with my Lord requires a sacrifice of time. Realize this up front. If you're going to be committed, if you really want to get to know your Lord, I'm suggesting we must meet with Him in quiet time. But realize up front, it takes a sacrifice. A sacrifice of time. A sacrifice of other things. While a regular place and a regular time is not required, as long as you're doing it, with me, a regular place and a regular time does help. The Bible's full of examples where men and women meet with, met with God at a regular, dedicated place. They built stone altars to remember that place. They met at riversides, a particular place. They met at mountains. A regular place and a regular time can enhance your quiet time with God. Quiet time with God also includes several important things. Uh, I jotted down prayer. I think that goes without saying. Opening your heart to God in the name of Jesus. Giving Him your burdens. Interceding for others. I wrote down fasting. You're all aware this is Lent season. And I know that's more of a contemporary church thing today. It was not necessarily practiced in the old, old Bible or even in the New Testament age. But it does call our attention towards the sacrifice of time and things and food as we look forward to the cross. I jotted down repentance and confession. Quiet time with our Lord must include repentance Confession and repentance. Oftentimes, this is uh, overlooked in our own personal life because we don't see our own faults. Ask God to show you areas where you are falling and repent. I wrote down adoration and praise and thanksgiving. 
God is so good. I think sometimes, I think it's good to open our hearts to God in prayer and give Him our burdens and present our needs and ask Him for, uh, to fulfill those needs. But sometimes I know in my own life I can be focused on myself. Our quiet time with God should also include adoration and praise and how good God is. Goes without saying, our quiet time should include the reading of God's Word. Ask God to give you a passion and a desire for His Word. It is a lamp, it is food, it is rain, it is instruction, and so much more. What I'd like to say as we think about quiet time with God, I wrote down the word meditate. This is a word I think the Christian church has probably lost to a, a large degree. And I'm not talking about meditation as such as the Eastern religions meditate. But I'm suggesting this morning, and I've even taken a look at my own life as I read God's Word, that I stop and I think about it. For a while, I meditate on the Scriptures. I meditate on what I've just heard because I'm so prone to fly through a passage of Scripture and go to work. We must meditate. Matthew 7, 7 says to ask, to seek, and to knock. Our quiet time involves listening. God primarily speaks to us through His Word and through His Spirit. We must listen to God in our quiet time. And so in closing... You might try asking these questions during your quiet time with your Lord. What new thing did I learn today? What old thing was made clear to me today? Is there a command for me today? Is there an example for me to follow in the Scriptures? Is there an error for me to avoid is there a sin for me to forsake? Is there a promise for me to claim? Is there a new thought about God Himself to help me understand and know Him better? Is there something that you want me to share with others today? Genesis 19:27 again, and Abraham got up early in the morning to a place where he stood before the Lord. Psalm 63 again says, I will rise up early in the morning to see thy power. Could it be the greatest kingdom, greatest power in the kingdom is realized when we humbly approach our Father in our quiet times. Let's pray.